The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. (sighs) Bring along the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies to add a sprinkle of joy to your workday. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the hidden histories and secret fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite TV shows, movies, music, and more. We're your two Fugees of facts. I don't think I can say that anymore. Because it's refugees, right? Oh, that's what that means? I didn't know that. Oh, wow. I, I We're the whitest something. guys in the room. <laughs> I'm Alex Heigl. <laughs> I'm Jordan Runtalk. And Jordan? Today we're talking about one of the lodestars of hip-hop's late 90s imperial era, a masterpiece that's one of the last genuine pieces of monoculture from the pre-aughts. Turns 25 this week? Last week? Whatever. We're in the ballpark. This week, yeah. The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill. I remember this album being everywhere. I remember that cover art. I could probably draw it from memory. Um, (laughs) We were just talking before we started about uh, the doo-wop video that I used to see all the time on... um, I guess this would have been the box and maybe MTV because oh, I didn't watch a ton of. Yeah, yeah, because I didn't have the patience for MTV, which had non music on it. <laughs> but the box was just videos. Miseducation is a great document of the times. It's a great snapshot, but it's also just like. I don't know if it can genuinely be called auteurist based on some of the controversies that we're talking oh, about, but Hill yeah. was definitely a real talent. Still is, probably, but we don't have that much evidence. <laughs> she was a real talent around this time. Uh, Tom Bryant wrote at Stereo Gum. She's generally remembered as one of the greatest rappers and singers of an era when singers didn't really rap and rappers didn't really sing. <laughs> so, And the record is this great multi-genre mix of um you know it's i, I really like the neo soul from around this era like one of my yeah. favorite records is uh the, is the Dan, is d'angelo voodoo and i like a lot of the soulquarian stuff and this has some of that in there but it's also you know parts of it were recorded in bob marley's studio in jamaica and so there's this heady mix of almost every genre of black music in there and, and she was 23 brian wilson was that age when he made pet sounds yeah and it cost both of them Oh, every, <laughs> everything. Um, and it was a huge hit, which we'll get to in a bit. Jordan, your thoughts. 
Yeah, I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you that I came to this pretty late, so it's not etched in my synapses the way it should be for most people in my age group. Um, allow me to cite my oft-expressed excuse, which is that I really didn't engage with a lot of contemporary pop music when I was a kid. Uh, this was my Beatles and Malt Shop memories era, <laughs> which uh, is ironic considering the song Do Up That Thing, but I probably heard of that song listened to it, realized it was not actually a doo-wop song, and then got <laughs> mad and refused to listen to any more. Um, so yeah, I didn't really glom on to this, and I think by the time I became aware of her in a, in a serious way, it was mostly as a tabloid story when I first started my career as an entertainment journalist, uh, and that would have been in the early 2010s when she was going through her tax evasion stuff. Um, I, I, I must have seen, I have this memory of her, I think in like a Guinness Book of World Records, like the picture of her at the Grammys with an arm full of statues. Yeah. Um, she became, I think the first woman to win five Grammys, uh, in one night. But, uh, yeah, my impression of her until very recently, again, I'm ashamed to say this, wasn't as much that she was a major musical force, but she was an artist who had a big record and then never came back. And was like almost in the one hit wonder territory, um, which is obviously an extremely unfair characterization of her career. Uh, and yeah, it really wasn't until fairly recently that I went deeper. I am a huge Amy Winehouse fan. And I think it was when the documentary Amy came out in 2015, they had a lot of deep cuts on the soundtrack, and there was a cover of Amy doing Do Up That Thing, which makes total sense. You could really tell that that's totally Amy's vibe. And that sent me back to this record, and I realized just how incredible it was and just how wrong I was. Well, from the debate over the proper credit for the album's songs to how the stress of creating and then living up to the masterpiece ultimately led Hill to retreat from public life to the long shadow it casts on... Actually, I realize I didn't really get to that last part. To a third bullet point that I'll decide on later. <laughs> Here's everything you didn't know about the miseducation of Lauren Hill. Uh, Lauren was born in Newark, New Jersey, and she grew up middle class in suburban South Orange, New Jersey, uh, which I believe she may still live there to this day. And I, I think when I, she was definitely living there for a while, if she doesn't still, uh, both her parents were amateur musicians. She grew up listening to her mom's soul records. And uh, fittingly, she had a defining moment of her teen life when at the age of 13, she got booked to sing at the famous Amateur Night at the Apollo. Uh, I'm wincing as you say that because it is brutal. Yeah, I mean, she's fine, but the crowd is famously yeah, that's, harsh. That's the bit. Um, yeah. She sang "Who's Loving You," which was a 1960 single Smokey Robinson wrote for the Miracles. And like at the performance, like she's not bad by any stretch. No, she was just like her voice wavers just a little bit, and the crowd immediately comes for her. Um, Which, because she's obviously nervous. That's the yes. thing that I think is just inexcusable. Is that she's clearly very good, but nervous. And instead of being a generous audience, they just come for her. the 13-year-old girl who dared to get up on stage. Dared to dream. Yeah. And uh, but so she she soldiers on. Um, the hook doesn't come out. You know, the whole, that's the whole bit at the Apollo. They bring out the hook. The executioner. Uh, 
Yes. So they come. I don't think it's a hook. I think it's because that's the gong show. I think it's a guy with a broom who would yeah. chase people off the stage as if they were like woodland creatures on a back porch <laughs> or something. The guy who did that, that was one guy's job. He was a vaudeville tap dancer named Sandman Sims. And he did that role from the 50s until 2000. For half a century, he crushed Hopeful's dreams as a ch- on the stage at the Apollo as his professional gig. And then there was also, I don't know if this was reserved for people who were especially bad or just if Sandman Sims had the night off or what, but I guess there was another guy who would chase off people who were getting booed with a cap gun to the sound of a siren that that would play over the sound system. So that's, that's nuts. Um, Yeah. But yeah, another person who bombed, another future celebrity who bombed at uh, Open Mic Night or Amateur Night at the Apollo was Luther Vandross, who appeared there five times and was booed off every single time. And then he went on to sing on Sesame Street before getting his big break, backing David Bowie on Young Americans. Uh, Jimi Hendrix, though, won first place at an amateur music contest at the Apollo in 1964. So they... uh, at least got that right, but yeah, we should punch in uh, punch in a clip from that performance Lauren did because it's really great. I mean, uh, who's loving you? I'm I'm imagining she chose that song because there's almost as well known as the Smokey Robinson version is Michael Jackson's version when he was like you know very early Jackson Five days, probably mm. like nine ten years old. Yeah. So I wonder if that's like the official like preternaturally gifted <laughs> Motown soul anthem singer anthem. Yeah, is it wasn't Whitney Houston from Newark or South Orange rather? Who? I don't know. She's from Newark, Whitney Houston. Yeah. yeah. No. And Jersey. I Jersey's believe... got a lot of. Jersey's got a lot of great. As far as musical states go, Jersey's got a lot of great claims to it. You know. Bruce, Misfits. Oh yeah. Um, Whitney. You know, Lauren, Frank Sinatra. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. Most yeah, Italian. Good. Most Italian guys from the, the Four Seasons. Bon Jovi. Oh, I was going to say, is Frankie Valli there? George Clinton, Debbie Harry, uh, Patti nice. Smith, Bill Evans, Donald Fagan. <laughs> like, it gets really crazy when you actually start to tally it up. Paul Simon. No. Paul Simon. Oh, no, he was a native of New York City, but he was, bo- no, he was born in Newark. Paul si- I didn't know that. Wow. I like to pretend that you're just doing this from memory right now. No, no, I, I didn't think I could do that. No. It's funny when you get into like the really granular people like um Blues Traveler and and uh the Bouncing Souls. <laughs> I would have bet anything that Blues Traveler was from like North Carolina. Yeah. Sarah Vaughn, that's crazy. Ooh. Count Basie? Yeah, man. Jersey. Who knew? Was Sarah Vaughn the one who flipped the table on uh, Aretha Franklin? She sang from time to time. I know that for <laughs> a fact. You drama monger. Get this back Sorry, on track. Where the hell are we? Right. 
All right, all right. Uh, Lauren Hill was a straight-A student in high school, and she also ran track and field and was a cheerleader and was also elected homecoming queen. But the most defining moment of her teen life came in ninth grade when she teamed up with classmate Praz Michelle to form a rap group called Translator Crew with a Z, Mm -hmm. which also featured Praz's cousin Wyclef Jean, and together they became the Fugees. Wyclef was the only one of this threesome who was born in Haiti, though Praz's parents were also. And Wyclef and Lauren Hill's on-and-off relationship would color a lot, of, a lot of what into miseducation, which we will get to in a bit. Yeah, their relationship is bad. on Like, messy on both ends. Uh, anyway, it's a measure of Hill's talent that before she even graduated, she had the bones of a fairly promising acting career going. In 1991, she was MC Light's understudy in... Club 12, which was an off-Broadway hip-hop reimagining of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, which sounds awful. Uh, Wyclef was <laughs> also with there. with Lauren Hill in it? Come on. Well, that's, well, she was an understudy. MC, who's, right. what did MC Light, I should know this off the top of my head. MC Light cha-cha-cha. Yeah, this is when it becomes apparent that we are, we, we do not have not as a rich background in hip-hop as we do in most areas of pop culture nerdery. She also landed a role in the soap opera As the World Turns. And then in 1993... 1990- That's bizarre. <laughs> and then in 1993, at 18, she made her big screen debut in your favorite sequel, Sister Act 2, <laughs> Back in the Habit. <laughs> I did. That was actually where I first encountered Lauren Hill. That's true. She's great in that movie. She yeah. had like a real, she could have been a real actress. Like she had a real presence and she's, yeah, she's great. I think that actually may have been where I first saw her and then was like, yeah, actually same. Uh, she also decided to go to Columbia <laughs> for college while the Fugees uh, were like blowing up uh, with their 1996 sophomore album, The Score. Fuji La, the uh, song with where she sings the hook on, peaked at number 29 in the Hot 100, but the album eventually sold 7 million copies just in the U.S., uh, mostly on the strength of their version of Roberta Flack's Killing Me Softly, which you are about to ruin. Yeah, but before I do, I'm going to ruin Columbia also. Um, (laughs) Art Garfunkel also uh, went to Columbia just as his career in Simon and Garfunkel was taking off. I forget if he was studying architecture or mathematics i think it was mathematics but he wasn't so sure i think he thought that the whole simon and garfunkel folk pop thing was going to be a flash in the pan and he wanted to uh to go study up and get his degrees so he went to columbia one of the many ways that art garfunkel and lauren hill are similar but yes that was the worst thing you've ever said on this (laughs) (laughs) uh but yes my uh little detour and killing me softly with his song uh it's written about your favorite and mine don mclean did you know that did we talk about this in the american pie episode we must have at some point yeah uh so the song was written when a 20 year old singer songwriter named Lori lieberman saw don mclean perform at la's troubadour club the very famous club in 1971 and she really loved don's song empty chairs and she started scribbling notes on presumably like a beer coaster or something or a napkin that very night for the lyrics that would become Killing Me Softly with his song. Uh, and the song was actually written by Norman Gimbel and Charles Fox. She was uh, signed to a production deal to these, these two songwriters. And so she went uncredited for years 
as a co-writer on this song, and it became a source of a very ugly legal squabble. I guess she was signed to them, but she also started a uh, romantic relationship with Gimbal, uh, and then he apparently, according to Lori Lieberman, became abusive and their partnership crumbled. And uh, so the songwriting duo would spend decades trying to minimize her role in this song that, through the Fugees and Roberta Flack, would sell a gazillion copies. Uh, that's a whole other episode, but I think she's finally credited now after many, many years. Um, but Lori Lieberman, she was the first person to record this song in 1972, and it didn't do much on the charts. Uh, and then they tried to shop it around to other singers. Helen Reddy of I Am Woman, Hear Me Roar fame has said that she was sent the song, but she said the demo sat on my turntable for months without being played because I didn't like the title. That's true. It's kind of a weird title. Uh, Roberta Flack, who did, I mean, arguably the most iconic version to me more so than the Fuji's version. But then again, I would say that because I, in my mind, lived through the 70s. Uh, she first heard the song while on an airplane, while listening to like an in-flight music program. And she loved it so much, she, uh, she just, I think she didn't even know what the song was. She just wrote down the lyrics. And then as soon as she landed, I believe she called Quincy Jones, who she was acquainted with and said, you know, hum the song to him and said some of the words like, can you track this down for me in like your publishing context? I love this song. And she uh, did. She recorded it, went to number one. And um, it was, how many years would it have been? About 20 years later, the Fugees did a version. It was recorded for their album, The Score. I think it was the last song recorded for that album after Proz made the suggestion to cover it. Anyway. <sighs> wow. Okay, uh, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, meanwhile, in 1997, Wyclef went solo with the double platinum, The Carnival, uh, thanks to the strength of Gone Till November. Great song. Uh, it was a bad time for the Fugees. Wyclef had always either forced himself into the spotlight. He used to do like backflips on stage and play guitar behind his head or just force himself into the spotlight. Uh, and his relationship with Hill, which had continued after Jean married designer uh, Marie Claudinette, was effectively destroying the group. Um, not that their relationship was really functional or fun at any point, as Wyclef wrote in his, uh, in his biography. We had fights on planes. We had huge fights, and a few times when it went down, she started swinging at me right there in the seats. People would scatter. We never got arrested, but we came close a few times in Europe. In, this bi uh, in his autobiography, Wyclef, who it's important to note defrauded an entire country <laughs> with his uh, Yale Haiti charity, which was launched after the wake of the 2010 uh, earthquake and essentially served as a piggy bank for uh, Wyclef and his tr cronies to just fly around and live large. Uh, he blames Lauren Hill for for breaking up the Fugees because um, this is where I say this gets really messy. Uh, at some point, Lauren meets Bob Marley's son, Rohan, who's playing football for the University of Miami. And she gets pregnant with his child, but she lies to Jean uh, and lets him think that the kid is his and plays up this ambiguity uh on basically until the kid's born. And then when he found out, he wrote, uh, in that moment, something died between us, um, which is sort of understandable. Um, mm. A friend told Torre for Rolling Stone in 2003, he wrote a great feature about kind of what happened. Honestly, she didn't even want the relationship with Rohan. Everyone was pushing her towards Marley to get her out of the other thing. They pushed her towards him like, 
Why don't you give him a chance? Come on, go out on a date. Just do it. Not knowing this man had all this other baggage and drama in his life. Uh, that baggage turned out to be the fact that Rohan had gotten married in 1993 and had two children with a woman and was still married, probably, at the time he met uh, uh, Lauren. I found a note on his Wikipedia that said he later produced divorce documents from Haiti, which is funny because that's not a country that we were talking about at, uh, with regards to their relationship. <laughs> you would assume... He would maybe have gotten the papers in Jamaica or in the United States, but is Haitian divorce a thing? Isn't that a Steely Dan song? Huh. I don't know what it says about... Oh, it says this song refers to the alleged ease of divorce in Haiti. Okay, yeah, cool, man. scam. All right, great. An anonymous source told Rolling Stone, people don't know how calculating she can be. Lauren used Roe to pull herself out of the relationship with Clef, and she happened to get pregnant. She hoped that the baby was Wyclef's because it would have forced his hand, but it wasn't. She would later have, according to my notes, five kids with Rohan Marley. Yeah. 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 Which is a, 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 a kind of a shocking thing when you maybe didn't even really want to be in a relationship with the guy in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Hill, for her part, told Trance Magazine at the time, the Fugees was a conspiracy to control, to manipulate, and to encourage dependence. I took a lot of abuse that many people would not have taken in these circumstances. Um, are the Fugees the most white-collar crime band of all time? They absolutely must be. I'm yeah. trying to think of... Because Wyclef defrauded a charity... Lauren went to jail for tax evasion, and I just found that that this year, Proz was convicted right. of a spearheading a multi-million dollar political donation fund uh, money shuffling campaign that um, involved a Malaysian fugitive named Joe Lowe. It's wild. I think Rolling Stone had a big expose on that. That's truly nothing nefarious. I mean, on the right side, I think some of the money was going to Barack Obama and some of it was going against Trump or whatever. Oh, sorry, we're not allowed to get political. Uh, but um, yeah, it wasn't like he was funding like coups in, in like Somalia or whatever, but still really wild. If you threw a, a dartboard at all the 1990s hip hop acts who you thought would commit this, this uh, slew of crimes... <laughs> Would you have thought it would have been the Fugees? Yeah, tax evasion, charity defrauding, and international political money laundering. I would have bet on Drew Hill. I wouldn't have expected TLC. Maybe Salt and Pepper. Hmm. 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 A uh, a friend, or I guess more of an acquaintance's uh, mom, was Lauren Hill's cellmate in prison. Oh, when she was in jail. Yeah, apparently she was very nice. Yeah, I mean, she was there for like three months. It was yeah. not, it was not, <laughs> she wasn't doing a hard time. Um, Wycliffe sounds like a piece of shit. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. Uh, Torrey had this thing in the, in the, in the Rolling, the Rolling Stone feature in 2003 where uh, basically Proz talked about how when Wycliffe was writing the carnival, both Lauren Hill and Proz were supportive of him, wanted him to branch out. And then when Hill started writing her own songs, uh, Wycliffe was like, yeah. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna help you out with that stuff. Um, Proz told Torre, uh, I I remember when Pepsi wanted her for a commercial, and they were like, "All we want is you. We don't know the other two cats." She said, "Without them, I'm not doing it." There's a lot of things she didn't do because of the group. 
then when she goes to work on her music and she doesn't have the support, that can have an effect. Uh, several quotes later, he calls Wyclef Jean a cancer in case you <laughs> needed a more <laughs> forceful quote. That's his cousin, right? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, the man did defraud Haiti. While she was pregnant, uh, Hill wrote and produced songs for women like Whitney Houston and Aretha Franklin, which is insane to think about. Um, Aretha's uh, 1998 single, A Rose is Still a Rose, that Hill produced, was peaked at number 28. Imagine you, you, you have, you're like 20 and you're producing and writing for Aretha Franklin. That's uh, wild. Marley, uh, Rowan Marley and Lauren Hill's son Zion was born in 1997, shortly after Hill dropped out of Columbia and turned 20. <laughs> lot, lot happened to her in not very much time. Uh, she was feeling frustrated on multiple levels. People told her that having a child at this stage would be bad for her career. And she was also fed up with her label, who was balking at her desire to go solo like Wyclef. So she began the process of assembling a crew of musicians and got to work on what would become her defining artistic statement. She told Rolling Stone, When I decided that I wanted to try a solo project, I was met with incredible resistance and discouragement from a number of places that should have been supportable. So that had a motivating factor. But it was less about proving myself and more about creating something I wanted to see and hear exist in the world. I think most of her emails or most of her interviews since like the mid-2000s have been email-based or like on Tumblr. Interesting. for that... Torre feature he was like um, he called her for a quote and, she, and he got this long thing that was like Miss Hill does not uh, do interviews that do not compensate her for her time and effort uh, and he like asked around and another magazine had also been in contact with her and she wanted 10 grand for the cover <laughs> which is it, you know it's funny because like a lot of what she talks about makes sense but in like a kind of like um, that's just not how any of this works way <laughs> You know, like she she's arguably right that the music industry is disgusting and parasitic and that like, you know, doing interviews and, and stuff and like and, and all this stuff is a big drain on time and resources. But like, that's just not the world. I'm so we're all sorry. And she has chosen not to live to live in it. So, yeah, which I mean, again, at least she stuck to her guns with yeah. that. Did you ever have a, an interview request to ask for money? Um, No. I did, um, and it was always with, like, the people who were close to the actual stars and not an actual famous person. Oh, of A lot course. of people, I, I worked on um, a feature on Freddie Mercury, just digging into his life when Bohemian Rhapsody came out and, and got some quotes from people like Brian May and, like, people were actually close to him, but I was also was trying to get on, you know, more ancillary figures and a lot of those types of figures were asking for money. Um, and then um, I did a show, a podcast about the life of David Bowie, and it was sort of the same deal. A lot of um, people who were kind of on the fringes of him, including people who uh, claimed to have had romantic relationships with him, uh, were all asking for, for money, including his former wife. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think some of the 90s stuff, like, I'm sure, like, Inside Edition and some of the tabloids just kind of set that precedent in people's minds. But Maybe. it's always like, yeah, yeah, legitimate places don't do that. Uh, anyway, one of Miss Education's mixers and engineers was a guy named Gordon Williams with the charming nickname of Commissioner Gordon, which I, of course, love because it's a Batman reference. Uh, oh, yeah. He was an A&R guy who'd come up through New York's hip-hop scene, and he told OK Player in 2021, I met Laura when she was a member of the Translator crew. 
She asked me to work with her on the miseducation of Lauren Hill after a lot of bumping into one another at other people's sessions. We recorded in New York, Miami, and at Hope Road, or, or Tough Gong Studios, uh, in Jamaica. To be in Bob Marley's house created a landscape for magic. Stephen Marley was the one who invited us to come in, which is odd considering she had a kid with the non-Stephen Marley. It's all family. <laughs> I had organized the equipment that had to be brought to Jamaica, and we had to make sure it could work as a museum when we weren't recording. They let Lauren op occupy the main studio... We were there for a couple weeks at a time across multiple sessions. And Rich Nice, who was an A&R man at Columbia at the time, told OK Player, Commissioner Gordon was in control of the studio. As a Trackmasters producer, I had a respected ear. She would ask me what I thought. She would give us five different versions of one song with other verses, differing hooks, and we'd love all five. Lauren always has her idea of what she wanted. It was never a scenario where she was lost or asked, what do I do? And in an interview, Lauren described the first day of recording by stating, The first day in the studio, I ordered every instrument I ever fell in love with. Harps, strings, timpani, organs, clarinets. It was my idea to record it so that the human element stayed in. I didn't want it to be too technically perfect. I love that. Yeah, she's talked about um, her like liking older keyboards, like whirlies and... and uh electric pianos and, and Hammond organs that might not be perfectly in tune. She says she never uses compression on her voice, on her vocal tracks. Um, Commissioner Gordon said that when James Poyser, who was at the time playing keys for D'Angelo, came in to uh, to play on the song Superstar, they rented a harpsichord that was so out of tune, or so old, it fell out of tune uh, so much that they had the tuner on hand. And by the time James finished playing it uh, on a track, it was already out of tune. Just hilarious. Can I ask you a, a mega nerd question? Please. How do electric pianos go out of tune? Uh, because the tines, so they're they're instead of strings like a piano, they're metallic tines, and um, because they're being struck repeatedly, they can get just get bent out of shape. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Yeah, the few the few ones that I've ever actually touched or like been in a studio with, I've I've gone in and immediately like wanted to sit down and people have been like please don't do that because <laughs> apparently like people sit down at them unplugged and want to play them hard enough to actually like produce oh, sound and that's wow. really bad for the tines you, you always have to play them amplified as you meditate on that we'll be right back with more too much information after these messages Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com slash hypergig for details. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. 
And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. So we'll get into some of the higher profile um, musicians on the record, including one of my nemeses, um, but Carlos Santana. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, but it's worth talking about the core of the studio musicians behind Miseducation because that's where one of its biggest controversies come from. They were a gang of musicians who Hill christened the New Ark, um, although they <laughs> are, by their own admission, were known for a while after this whole thing as the Lawsuit Guys. Um, the four musicians who formed the studio band, Rashim Kilo Pew, Vada Nobles, and the twin brothers Johari and Tejmold Newton, sued Lauren Hill and the label Columbia when they were not credited as writers and producers. They eventually settled out of court for $5 million. Kilo Pew brought his crew to the Hill's house in Orange, New Jersey. Everyone hit it off, initially. She's really like a sister. If there was a female version of me, it would be her, Joe Newton told XXL Mag. I knew her. I knew the family, her mother and father, brother, her man, her kid. We were extensions of her family. Hill brought the team into a studio that she had in the attic of the house where they began working on songs for Aretha Franklin, another singer named Andrea Martin, before starting work on Miseducation, uh, either in the attic of this orange house or Manhattan studios. They were recording on two-inch tape, trying to use as few loops as possible or samples. Uh, Commissioner Gordon told Rolling Stone, in the beginning, the new art guys were the core who put the basic tracks together. Vatter was a programmer who made drum beats. Kilo would write hooks and lyrics. Tejumold Newton played piano. And Joe Newton played guitar. Joe told XXL, Lauren was definitely the guide. It was her vision. Our job is to take whatever was in her head and put it down for her. This led to a collaborative way of writing, where a riff or sound would morph into an idea and become a groove and finally emerge as a song. Everybody had jobs, Pew remembered. Vada's job was to find the groove that made us hum. Then T, uh, Tejumold, and Joe's job was the instrumentation to enhance that groove. When the groove was so catchy that it made us hum, either Lauren or me, then it was time to create the words that she wanted to sing. It was literally constant work. Even when you didn't think you were working, you were working. The vibe was incredible. Much like the band, this informal division of labor, in which nothing was set on paper until it was too late, would come back to bite both Lauren Hill and the Newark. The band came with her to Jamaica for a little over two weeks, according to Pew, where they worked on Lost Ones, Doo-Wop That Thing, When It Hurts So Bad, and Forgive Them Father. And there was a really cute moment, uh, apparently, on the record. Commissioner Gordon recalled, Lost Ones was recorded the first day we were in Jamaica. I saw all those kids gathered around Lauren, screaming and dancing. Lauren was in the living room next to the studio with about 15 Marley grandchildren around her, the children of Ziggy, Stephen, and Julian. And she starts singing this rap verse, and all the kids start repeating the last word of each line, chiming in very spontaneously because they were so into the song. 
and it made it onto the record. After Jamaica, things got messy. The Newton twins say that Nobles convinced them to sign a publishing deal with him, which they did, in the middle of making Miseducation. But at some point, Nobles was informed that Hill would be taking all the writing and production credits. He and Pew were not happy about this and exited the project six months before it wrapped, while the Newtons stayed on to finish the album. But they were ultimately ensnared in the lawsuit after the release due to the deal that they signed with Nobles. Joe said, we got dragged into a lawsuit we didn't even want to go into. And initially, this super backfired on on these guys. Uh, Hill was basically hip-hop's golden child at the time. So a bunch of relatively unknown session musicians, all male, uh, suing her was seen at it was it was seen as an ugly move, and it um, they said it had repercussions for them. Pew was basically passed over for an opportunity to work with uh, Missy Elliott, who was as she still is, but extreme extremely hot at the time, uh, just because she found out that he had been involved in the lawsuit. Another of the album's producers, a guy named Che Vicious. Uh, told Rolling Stone that Hill might have faced pressure from the label to make herself seem an auteur. Uh, he said, we, we gave, she gave me co-production on To Zion, but I did the track on my own. There was label pressure to do the Prince thing, written and produced by. Once it became clear that I wouldn't be credited or compensated according to what's fair, I had to voice how I felt. I had a wife and family. She barely credited me. She gave Che my credits. As God is my witness, that was in spite. I tried my best to resolve it without lawyers, but it became impossible. And all of this was reopened in very ugly fashion by jazz pianist Robert Glasper, who in 2018 went on a rant about Hale on a radio show in Houston. Asked a question about managing egotistical personalities, Glasper took aim squarely at Hill, bringing up moments from a gig he did with her in 2008, in which she frequently changed arrangements, demanded she be addressed as Ms. Hill, and never looked at directly in the eye, and she also threatened to cut the band's payment in half, presumably if any of these things were not abided by. In a 2003 feature on Lauren Hill for Rolling Stone, a few people mentioned that when they asked her how much they would be paid for working on a record with her, she said, do it for God, i.e. <laughs> do it for free. Glasper continued, you've already stolen all my friends' music. Miseducation was by great musicians and producers that I know personally. You got a big handoff of music you didn't even write. Those songs were written by other people and, and they did not get their credit. She likes to take credit so she can become this super person. If you're a super person and you're that talented, do it. You feel me? She couldn't tune her guitar in rehearsal. <laughs> and Lauren was uh, moved to respond to Glasper later that month, writing 3,000 words on Medium. Medium.com. She said, these are my songs. Musicians are brought in because of the masterful way they play their instruments. You may be able to make suggestions, but you can't write for me. I am the architect of my creative expression. No decisions are made without me. No matter how incredible the musicians who play with me are, my name is on the marquee. The expectation to make it all come together is on me. The risk and financial losses are on me. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, man. It's so ugly. You don't want to tar and feather people, especially women, but the evidence does not really look good for her based on, um, you know the unplugged performance where she insisted on playing solo guitar and was not a very good guitarist. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the Robbie Robertson thing where it's like, Oh yeah, that was all you. So when's what that happening? Yeah. When's that happening again? <laughs> uh, 
Anyway, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's the exact same thing as the f***ing band, man. Go, you can't, if you're going to go into the studio and collaborate with people, better get the exact nature of your legality straight because you, you will, something bad will happen. You will get bitten in the ass at some point. Sorry. Well, while reading this account, I was moved to think, you know, I've heard a lot about celebrities who reportedly demand that underlings not look them in the eye. Uh, I think Diana Ross was one that sprung to mind. And I was just thinking about this, and I did a little Googling, and there is a lot written on this subject I was <laughs> sort of shocked to find. The New York Post wrote a piece in 2011 called Stair Wars. <laughs> the ultimate <laughs> star perk is forbidding eye contact. And it includes the passage, We've all heard this for years, attached to pretty much every A-list celeb or rock star out there. Barbara Streisand forces hotel workers to turn and face the wall when she enters a room. Goes one tale. Same for Michael Jordan at the Foxwoods Resort Casino. Some say Nicole Kidman insists her makeup artist refrain from making eye contact. Tom Cruise supposedly ordered extras to avert their gazes on the set of Magnolia. So I'd like to do a little sidebar on the phenomenon of celebrities allegedly <laughs> saying that people can't look them in the eye because it's fascinating to me. Uh, the same story in page six reports that the smoking gun leaked Katy Perry's tour writer for 2011, which provided in their mind definitive proof because of this clause covering her driver's behavior. She stipulated that her chauffeur is, quote, not to start a conversation with her or, quote, stare. And this same New York Post piece repeats a story that Jessica Alba told, I think on several occasions, about a time she had a bit role on two episodes of Beverly Hills 90210 back in 1998, and she was apparently contractually forbidden for making eye contact with Luke Perry or Tori Spelling. Otherwise, she would have been thrown off the set. <laughs> she said, you wouldn't be allowed to talk to them unless they spoke to you first. It was bizarre, but I guess that's what happens to you when you become a big star. It's like, it's like the queen. Uh, the same piece also said that Sylvester Stallone was sued by five of his household staffers in 1999, complaining that they could be fired if they looked him in the eye. Apparently, when Sylvester Stallone entered a room, they were expected to, quote, back out and vanish immediately. <laughs> uh, a piece on Yahoo about this phenomenon uh, cites an example from Boy Meets World actor Ryder Strong, who was in a 1993 movie with Donald Sutherland called Benefit of the Doubt. And apparently he was informed nobody can make eye contact with Sutherland. He talked about this on the iHeart podcast, Pod Meets World. If you were in a scene with him, you could make eye contact with him. But his whole thing was that every crew member has to look away. And the theory, I guess, behind all this is that actors are sensitive and they're getting in the zone and any kind of like, you know, eye contact is a very intimate thing and it might throw them or shake their performance or... I'm I'm waiting for you to make a fart sound. I mean, dude, it like it's never like good actors that you hear about, right? Like sorry Donald Sutherland, you're not, you know, fucking if if like Daniel Day-Lewis said it, like I would suddenly I would be, I'd be like, "Oh yeah, okay, that that has credence." If like Meryl Streep said it, I'd be like, "Okay, sure." But it's like Oh, Donald Sutherland, do you really need the purity of your getting into character for the f***ing movie you made with one of the guys from Boy Meets World? Like, you old <laughs> asshole. Having said all of that, if I had that kind of power, I would probably do it. I don't want, really? people, to look, I, I want people to look at me in the eyes. Yeah. Yeah, that makes, makes fair. Insects. 
Well, here's a quick lightning round of stories about other famous uh, other A-listers who have been linked to this uh, this demand. Uh, Sandra Bullock. Entertainment mm. journalist Steve Hessler claimed back in 2010, I was an extra in the lake house when Sandra Bullock was in it, and we were told that we were not allowed to make eye contact with her unless she initiated the eye contact. But apparently the crew started this policy on her behalf, and when she found out about it, she threw a big party for the cast and crew just to show that she wasn't a terrible person. Yeah, if somebody ruined Sandra for me, I'd be pretty broken. Yeah, yeah. Tom Cruise, on the other hand, uh, rumors about... Uh, Killing rumors Shelley about Miscavige? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, what, what? It's astounding to me that anyone would bother cherry-picking this particular weird thing about Tom Cruise out. Like, what? Yes. Uh, he has denied them. Uh, in an interview with uh, an interview that director Chris McQuarrie gave uh, to the Sunday Times, he said that he asked Tom Cruise what the weirdest story was that he'd ever heard about himself, and Cruise laughed and said that it was a myth that people were not allowed to look me in the eye. So he says that's not true. Leonardo DiCaprio, the Hollywood <laughs> Reporter, claimed in 2019 that on the set of Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, quote, some crew members on there were instructed to avoid making eye contact with him. The, the qualifier of some crew members is interesting. Maybe they're people that he just specifically didn't like. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, again, Leo's not much. exactly like, I don't think anyone's like expecting Leo to be like the nicest guy in Hollywood, right? Especially if you're a 26-year-old woman. <laughs> Maybe that's what he meant. Maybe he meant uh, anyone who's over the age of 26, do not look at me in the eyes. <laughs> and also a dude. The rest of you, please do. <laughs> Uh, this brings us, of course, to Ellen DeGeneres. She <laughs> responded to uh, multiple reports of uh, toxic environment on her soundstage. Uh, according to page six, she had a Zoom call meeting with her uh, with her staff, and she addressed these reports. She said, I don't know where this rumor started that you can't look me in the eye. Please talk to me. Look me in the eye. <laughs> <laughs> that is a command. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and finally... Noted uh, a comedy hero of mine, but but noted uh, eccentric Mike Myers, a bodyguard who worked with Mike on The Love Guru, the <laughs> much maligned Love Guru in 2008, has claimed that he was fired for looking Myers in the eye. He said he was informed of this policy, but accidentally made eye contact while allowing him into his trailer. And this bodyguard, I guess he took to Twitter to say, within an hour, I got a phone call letting me know that I'm fired and I have to get off the set. Because I broke this weird rule. Mike yeah, Myers, man. meanwhile, denies this claim. That's just so f***ing dumb. Like, uh, you really needed to be in the, the right headspace for the love guru. Eye contact would have broken. Like, come on. F***ing chud. <laughs> he had to make, I guess, he, I guess he really had to pour it into writing the Pentaveret. Oh my god, I forgot Anybody remember that. that? Anybody remember? Like, what was that, two summers ago? A summer ago? Who knows? Doesn't matter. God, f*** these people. The least they can do is something interesting like Lauren Hill and just say, I'm not paying taxes anymore because of society. <laughs> uh, so pedestrian and boring eye contact. Um, all right, enough of that ugly stuff. What about the songs? A couple of them were pretty good, I'm told. <laughs> Uh, D'Angelo came by to sing on Nothing Even Matters. He told Rolling Stone, originally we were going to swap tunes for each other's projects because I was working oh, wow. on Voodoo at the same time, and my keyboardist, James Poyser, of the aforementioned out-of-tune harpsichord, was working with her. 
When Lauren and I went into the studio together, I laid down my vocals in the course of an hour. I don't know why he felt compelled to add that, but sure. Um, and then this is this was actually interesting to me. He said uh, churches started substituting God in for the lyrics to Nothing Else Matters. And he was like, whenever they make a gospel version out of a secular song, that's significant. Wow. Yeah. I'm... I'm having a tough time thinking of another example. Maybe I shall be released. I mean, neither of us go to like black Baptist fair. churches, so probably there are others. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, no, I shall fair. be released is a pretty, has been adopted. Meanwhile, on Everything is Everything, future R&B star John Legend showed up. I did not know this. Yep. He said, I was in the spring of my junior year at the University of Pennsylvania. He's talking to Rolling Stone. A friend invited me to give her a ride to Lauren's house in Jersey. Lauren was working on Everything is Everything. I sang and played a couple songs for her, and she asked me to play piano on the track. She guided me a little bit, but it was pretty simple because I was playing along with a string part that was already there. So I became known around campus as the dude who played on Everything is Everything. It was my little claim to fame at Penn for my whole senior year. That's cool. You know what's less cool? Carlos Santana. Yes, now canceled transphobic boomer guitar wank icon Carlos Santana, a man who never met somebody else's song he couldn't play the same licks over, uh, plays on To Zion, the most personal of the tracks addressed to Lauren Hill's son with Marley. I fucking hate Carlos Santana. I always have. Uh, really? Why is yeah. that? I just watched, so he was like a talking head that I was exposed to a lot when I was watching yeah. a bunch of like music documentaries and and he just had nothing profound to say ever and it came clearly was a guy who thought he did you know uh and and had a lot of like like the f***ing trans rant he just went on. like who the f*** asked you get up there play that that f***ing lick and go go wherever it is you go you know what a prick can you hum the Santana guitar lick? Is it like the same lick over and over? You have it more. No, no, no. I'm just thinking of that. Well, now I'm just thinking of the the smooth lick. But he has a very identifiable style. I mean, and and some of it is I don't know. It's it's just sounds like Guitar Center, it fucking shitty tone, like out of time. Just like sour bends. His bends are out of tune. Yeah, fuck that guy. Uh, he was a tough interviewed him a few times, and he's a tough interview. Were you being insufficiently deferential? No, no, he just, it was just, it was like nailing jello to the wall. It was just <laughs> everything you said was so conceptual that there was nothing to grab onto. So there was no follow ups. There was no, it, everything would just drift off into like, oh, wow. That's yeah. really, wow. That's really. Yeah. Where'd you get that leather fedora? <laughs> um,. So anyway, he plays on To Zion because uh, Hill promised to be on Supernatural. And in fact, she was, although not one of the songs that that album is remembered for. Uh, she apparently was a big fan of his going way back. She said, uh, told MTV News in 1999, I used to write music, you know, write songs over Santana's guitar playing when I was a little kid. I had all his records and I would play Samba Pati off the Abraxas album and just write rhymes and songs on top of it. So I knew Carlos way before he knew me. That song, Hill told The Guardian in 1999, is about the revelation that my son was to me. I had always made decisions for other people, making everybody else happy. And once I had him, that was really the first decision that was unpopular. It was one that was based on my happiness and not what other people wanted for me or for themselves. And it was the best decision I could have made because I'm the happiest and healthiest that I have ever been. 
We like to hear that. Yeah. For the album smash hit, doo-wop, parentheses, that thing, close parentheses, Venetia <laughs> Randolph, a backup singer on the track, told Rolling Stone that, quote, I got a phone call asking if I was available to come to Chunking Studios. Lauren came in eating spaghetti pomodoro and garlic bread. For some reason, I really want to know if she was, like, w- walking in with that and eating it as she was walking, or if, if she came in eating... Go- yeah. I just like oh. the fact that this person remembers that. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's, like, pretty... I'm trying to think if I have any celebrity experiences where they were eating and I'm remembering what they're eating. No? Okay. Mm-hmm. Moving on. Uh, Lauren explained where she's trying to go with this album. For doo-wop, she said... I want to play with 50s and 60s harmonies, like barbershop guys on the corner. And then we all just jumped in and harmonizing a cappella, woo, woo, woo. I should have given that more passion. (laughs) (laughs) Commissioner Gordon added, when I mixed doo-wop at Sony Studios, it was 128 tracks. Two 48 machines plus two 24 2-inch machines all running at the same time. I know there are a lot of vocal harmonies on that track. I know that. And I'm sure there are a lot of samples running at the same time. I'm sure there are a lot of drums that are individually mic'd and and have their own track. How are there 128 tracks on that song? I mean, everything you just said. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, but Jesus... Her vocals are probably tracked over a few times. Uh, yeah. Everybody, I mean, they might have done the Queen thing, you know, where everybody, mm. everybody's harmonies are tracked over multiple times. Um, yeah, I mean, that stuff piles up quickly. Uh, it's crazy. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can. There's, there's like prog rock wonks who put like fifty mics on a drum kit. <laughs> you know, mm. um, yeah. Some of the lyrics in doo wop though haven't aged particularly well. Uh, in an era that's much more sex positive, Hill's moralistic stance uh, can seem a little bit judgy. Uh, but in a details interview at the time, she skirted around uh, whether or not she was taking aim at some of her peers. I mean, to, to contextualize all of this, this is, you know, an era in which um, like Little Kim and Foxy Brown are rapping about sex in a very aggressive, female centered way. And to um, wop that thing is. Uh, Lauren was her image uh, was not at all sexual, and and this song in particular has uh, a few I mean, different sister lines. Act too. <laughs> What's that? I mean, her part in Sister Act too, where she was, you know, I mean, she's singing in a choir in in a nunnery. No, no, excuse me. Or no, she's a she's one of the teen kids. I forget. Yeah, yeah. It's been three weeks since you were looking for your friend, the one you let hit it and never called again. You act like you ain't hear him, then give him a little trim. To begin, how you think you're really going to pretend like you wasn't down and you called him again? Plus, when you give it up so easy, you ain't even fooling him. If he did it then, then you'd probably f*** again. Trim is such like a Rat Pack expression. Yeah. Uh, Who are you going to tell when the repercussions spin? Showing off your ass because you're thinking it's a trend. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, she said she wasn't taking aim at them in particular. She said, I'm not dissing them. I'm dissing their mindset. My music talks about a certain way of thinking, and if the cap fits, you know? I knew girls like Kim growing up. I might have even been one at a certain age. And there's a huge lack of self, self-esteem self behind that thinking. I don't think little Kim's problem is a lack of self-esteem. No, yeah, no. To quote little Kim around this period, I used to be scared of the dick. Now I throw lips to the Thank you. There you have it. Yes. <laughs> as true today as when it was written. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. 
Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. The album's cover of Frankie Valli's hit Can't Take My Eyes Off You was actually never meant to be a commercial single. It was recorded for the very forgettable Mel Gibson, Julia Roberts movie Conspiracy Theory. But once it hit the radio, it became immensely popular and wound up as a bonus track on the record. I would imagine this would have been around the time of its resurgence in 10 Things I Hate About You. Mm. Maybe that was 99. That might have been 99. Yeah, it was 99. I always came first, yeah. Good couple of years for Frankie. Yeah. Royalty checks yeah, must have then, been fat. And then he got uh then he got Jersey Boys premiered probably around then too. Mm. Jeez. Mm. Living large. Commissioner Gordon told Rolling Stone, Lauren called me and said she was behind and had to get the song done. She didn't know how the arrangement of the song went, so he went and got a copy from Coconuts or Sam Goody record stores. I had a little one-room 16-track studio in my apartment in Jersey. Lauren was eight months pregnant, laying on her back on the floor, half asleep, holding a handheld mic. She did all those vocals off the top of her head, pretty much in one take, with the beatbox and all that. That blew me away. That is a great version of that song. I love that song. Um, the album, as I was mentioned at the top of the episode, the album is in conversation with a history of a, of, of a wide swath of black music. Um, Hill and Mary J. Blige's duet, I Used to Love Him, samples a hook from Ice Cream, which was uh, a Wu-Tang member Raekwon solo track. The album's title track, Miseducation of Lauryn Hill, also calls back to another 90s rap star. It's a play on Common's 1994 song, I Used to Love Her. Her is an acronym for... Hip hop in its essence is real, which feel, has always felt like a stretch to me, Common. Uh, Hill also nods at a foundational classic from the dance music genre on the album, which he says, Jack Your Body. In every ghetto, every city, she's referencing the 1986 club anthem. 
Jack Your Body by Chicago DJ producer Steve Silk Hurley. And Lost Ones is built on a sample of the famous dancehall track Bam Bam by Sister Nancy, which itself interpolates a hook from the 1966 Toots and the Maytals song of the same name. That's just so cool, man. I love when I love uh, it's like it's like the old folk songs or like old blues songs that just have yeah. like a bunch of common lyrics. Everything's just kind of shared and passed around. Um, funnily enough, the teacher who's heard talking on, with students on miseducation's interludes is Ross Baraka, who is now the longtime mayor of Newark. He is the son of uh, Amiri Baraka, who is uh, a writer, uh, very foundational jazz writer, music writer who. Uh, Wrote a lot of his stuff under the name Leroy Jones. Uh, he said, I was running for councilman in Newark, and I was also an eighth grade teacher. I was just about to take two of my students home, and Lauren called and asked if I could come up to her house in South Orange. There were chairs set up in the living room, and a bunch of kids were there. She told me she wanted to discuss the concept of love. There was a blackboard, and I wrote the letters love, and we just went into the whole discussion. So for the album's title... He'll reach back to a 1933 book called The Miseducation of the Negro by Dr. Carter G. Woodson that her parents had a copy of. And in the book, Woodson railed against what he saw was cultural indoctrination by the U.S. school system against black students, writing at one point, when you control a man's thinking, you do not have to worry about his actions. You do not have to tell him to stand here or go yonder. He will find his, quote, proper place and will stay in it. You do not need to send him to the back door. He will go without being told. The title is also a reference to a 1974 black exploitation film uh, called The Education of Sonny Carson. Carson was a real-life figure. He was a Korean war vet, activist, community leader in Brooklyn who organized protests to get of the school systems in black communities in New York in the 1960s. And that film has become a huge touchstone in hip-hop. Uh, the Wu-Tang Clan, Prodigy of Mob Deep, Common, Ghostface Killer... Pete Rock, 2 Chains, and Meek Mill, among others, have all sampled dialogue from the film and their music, and 21 Savage and Travis Scott both sampled a song from the film's soundtrack to use as the basis for their tracks. Lauren Hill told The Guardian, the title of the album was meant to discuss those life lessons, those things you don't get in any textbook, things that we go through that force us to mature. Hopefully we learn. Some people get stuck. They say that what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. And these are some really powerful lessons that changed the course and direction of my life. And for the cover of the album, so beloved by my dear friend Alex Heigl, Lauren Hill initially pursued a school-themed art direction at her old high school in New Jersey, shot by a guy named Eric Johnson, who'd actually grown up in South Orange also. But after these images have been shot, Aaron Garozia, then Sony Music's art director, got a phone call from Lauren Hill's team. He recalled to OK Player, an image of Eric's was selected that would be carved, in quotes, from the wood of the desk. I provided direction to Will Kennedy, a gifted retoucher that was part of the art department. In 1998, Photoshop wasn't anywhere near as powerful. Retouchers made up for it with all their skills and talent. Will had a knack for getting the art to look just right. There had been various versions of the cover art, including some with the wood chips that had just been carved out, if you will, and visible on the surface of the desk. That got rejected, as the various wood chips were visually distracting. Then there was another version that had no pencil. But in the end, the cleaner desk was finally selected. Yeah, it always reminded me of the um, Burnin' the Whalers album cover, which I think in that interview, that OK Player interview, there's a different executive who's like, yeah, the the they didn't want the album, the Bob Marley album cover, which means more than one person made that <laughs> same mistake. And it also uh, made me think of the Alice Cooper, the uh, School's Out. School's Out. Which yeah. I doubt was an influence. <laughs> I'm just going to go on a limb there. 
Um, despite the album's status in this day and age, there was internal friction about it at the time. Rohan Marley told Rolling Stone, Lauren and her mom took early versions of the album to Sony Records, and they said, this is coffee table music. What is this? <laughs> she took her and walked out of there. Rich Nice, a and at Columbia, told OK Player, the buzz on the album in the building wasn't as popular as you might think, and her being a black woman added touchiness to it. There was a who does she think she is in the building. The climate from some senior execs was that they were not in favor of the record, and it was no secret to the people who created and worked on it. It was insulting that this great artist put together this amazing album, but all they want is a jukebox artist. Somebody actually <laughs> said, to Zion is okay, but there's no killing me softly here. However, the label was able to get a lot of press in order for Lauren. She was on the cover of Time Magazine's tribute to hip-hop's 20th anniversary, which I guess they're counting as 1978, which is weird because now we've got a big 50th anniversary of hip-hop. Hmm. Anyway. What is Time? Yeah, true. It's a flat circle. And they also scored covers to not just more black-focused magazines like Honey, Essence, Vibe, and The Source, but also Harper's Bazaar, GQ, and Rolling Stone. Stephanie Gale, the senior director of marketing at Columbia at the time, told OK Player, The biggest issue at the time seems silly now, but the label was concerned about how people would react to her being pregnant. I needed to make sure we could accomplish everything that was needed to properly set up an album without making it obvious that she was with child. We pushed to get the album photo shoot done as soon as we could deliver the iconic concept she was insisting on and use great discretion to get the doo-wop that thing video completed. Now, Heigl, tell us about this video for Do Up That Thing, because I, I, we were talking before we started recording, I don't think I've ever seen this video, which is one of my many cultural blind spots from the era in which I allegedly grew up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for any of you who are similarly in a blind spot, uh, it is a split screen setup with uh, Lauren in the current day and then as a kind of very obviously Motown influenced singer. Um, and it kind of pans around the streets of Harlem and everybody's dressed currently and then dressed from the sixties. Very vibey, very cool. The senior director of video production for Columbia at the time, Camille Yorick told okay player that she reached out to a bunch of directors and it was actually a British production duo named big TV who submitted the split screen idea. They flew to New York in advance of this shoot. And we had a great meeting with Lauren at her hotel. It was Lauren's decision to make the split screen invisible. She liked that one image blended into the other, as opposed to a stark line. What else is big TV done? That's not really Googleable. Just brings up Best Buy. <laughs> big TV. <laughs> anyway, York continued, the styling, photography, and production design were also key to the magic of that video. The challenge? We were basically shooting two videos at once. It was a five-day shoot, Two sets of wardrobes and art direction from two very different time periods requiring lots of research. We shot the whole thing in the Inwood section of Uptown Manhattan. We took over a city block for five days. Lauren was also very pregnant at the time, but she was a trooper. Uh, it paid off at the MTVMAs back when that meant something. Doo-Wop's <laughs> video won four awards for Best Female Video, Best R&B Video, Best Art Direction, and Video of the Year, making Hill the first solo black artist to win. Uh, and the second overall after TLC in 1995, because MTV didn't like black people. <laughs> the song Lost Ones was leaked early, and with it being a presumed shot at Wycliffe, radio stations ate it up, causing a wave of hype around the album. 
Consequently, when the full record dropped on August 25th, 1998, it debuted at the top of the Billboard 200, making Lauryn Hill the first unaccompanied female solo rapper to do so. And she's still one of only five female rappers to hold the honor, with the other four being Foxy Brown, yes, Eve, yes, Nicki Minaj, sure, Cardi B, eh. How do you feel about that? That's fine. Okay. <laughs> During its first week on the shelves, Miseducation sold over 420,000 copies, breaking the record for the release week sales by any female artist. Wow. That stood until Adele's 25. Jesus, not 21, 25. Yeah. Wow. That is crazy. The Recording Industry Association of America certified the album Gold a little more than a month after it came out, which is a sales of 500,000 copies or more, and the record spent 81 total weeks in the Billboard 200. In 2021, the Guinness Book of World Records noted that Lauryn Hill became the first female rapper to reach RIAA Diamond certification for selling 10 million copies of Miseducation. Not only has no other female rapper achieved the feat since, but the only rappers, period, to reach diamond status for an album are Eminem, Outkast, Notorious B.I.G., presumably not in his lifetime, Tupac, <laughs> presumably not in his lifetime, Beastie Boys, Beastie Boys, and MC Hammer. What was Beastie Boy? Licensed to Ill? Must have been licensed to Ill. Yeah. Couldn't have been Paul's Boutique. Okay. Wow. Miseducation was intended to function as a full album, and consequently, at first, Doo-Wop wasn't even going to come out as a commercial single. But the album was such a success that Columbia printed up a limited number of singles for the song and released them two months after the album dropped. Uh, that's just wild to me. In October of 1998, they weren't going to release it. Album was such a success that they were like, two months later, they were like, ah, shit. I, I guess we got to do this. The single debuted at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 and Hot Rap Songs chart, became Hill's only top 10 hit. Two other singles from Miss Education charted, X Factor at number 21 and Everything is Everything at number 35. And then at the Grammys the following year, Hill set two additional records for female artists. She received 10 nominations and won five awards, the first female artist to do so, with Miss Education becoming the first hip-hop record to win Album of the Year. Wow. And then this music goes into a minor key <laughs> because all of this came at a price. Hill's manager at the time... Uh, Jason Jackson told Rolling Stone, Lauren became an international superstar. She couldn't go to the grocery store without makeup, and I think that had an adverse effect on her. 2003 Rolling Stone article by Torre contended that Hill was offered the role of Charlie's Angels that ultimately went to Lucy Liu, and that she took meetings with Matt Damon about being in The Born Identity, Brad Pitt about a part in The Mexican, and with the Wachowskis about a role in the last two films in the Matrix trilogy, which... I am betting dollars to donuts is the role that ultimately went to Jada Pinkett Smith. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, wow. That is crazy. Did she do any big movies after? No, I assume not. Yeah. Nope. Lauren Hill told Rolling Stone, there were definitely things I enjoyed about stardom, but there were definitely things I didn't enjoy. The pedestal to me is as much about containment and control as it is adulation. Finding balance, clarity, and sobriety can be very hard for some to maintain. She added, the idea of artists as public property, I always had a problem with that. I agreed to share my art. I'm not agreeing to necessarily share myself. The entitlement that people often feel, like they somehow own you or own a piece of you, can be incredibly dangerous. 
I chafe under any kind of control like that and resist expectations that suggest I should somehow dumb down and be predictable to make people feel comfortable rather than authentically express myself. So Lauren withdrew into her family life and went deeper into religion. Jason Jackson, her manager, told Rolling Stone, It started to get strange. Bible study went from one day a week to three days a week to five days a week. I went to a couple of them, but was like, I completely understand if it's your calling, but it's not mine and I can't force it. As that picked up, we drifted further and further. Again, hard to know, hard to know what actually happened, but we do have, I mean, what, what, hard to know what actually happened, but what seemed to happen was uh, a guy named Brother Anthony came in uh, in 2000. Uh, He sort of a, Bible-centric spiritual advisor, uh, and possibly under his influence, Hill uh, fired her management team and other people close to her with no notice. Uh, Sources told Rolling Stone that she began starting many of her sentences with, Brother Anthony says. Uh, People couldn't pin down what exactly it was that he believed in other than the Bible. One person told Rolling Stone, I don't think he had a religion. I think he was more like, my interpretation of the Bible is the only interpretation of the Bible. I'm the only one on earth that knows the truth. Shortly after recording her disastrous uh, installment of MTV Unplugged, Hill told MTV Online, I met someone who has an understanding of the Bible like no one else I ever met in my life. I just sat at his feet and ingested pure scripture for about a year. Pros Michelle, never one to mince words, said, Brother Anthony was definitely on some other sh- I had a tape of his teachings. That shit is ill. F*** me up. I can't explain it. It was some weird shit, man. It was some real cult shit. So, MTV Unplugged 2.0, which is her only album-length proper release, uh, comes out, and it was a... Uh, it, it was it was a something. It was quite a thing. Uh, she didn't have any full band arrangements. It was just her and acoustic guitar, which she did appear to sh- not to have spent a ton of time practicing... Um, and the entire album is punctuated by a lot of, um, just raw emotion. Uh, she breaks down in tears repeatedly. She makes statements like I'm crazy and deranged. I'm emotionally unstable. I used to be a performer, but I don't really consider myself a performer anymore. She said, I created this public persona, this public illusion, and it held me hostage. I couldn't be a real person because you're too afraid of what your public will say. At that point, I had to do some dying. Wow. Yeah, there is the, the the. Do you remember this? I, I dimly. Yeah. Um. They recorded on July twenty first, uh, two thousand one. Um, it did uh get a sample of uh. It became the basis for Kanye's song "All Falls Down," one of the songs off of it. So it had that. But of course, now now it's all just being you know reappraised. Sam Smith tweeted that MTV unplugged. Uh, Lauren Hill's is their Bible. Britney Spears praised the album as amazing. I mean, I'm sure the performances were great, but it must have just been a troubling document of an artist in some form of what I'll tentatively say collapse. And I'm saying that as somebody who doesn't really know the intricacies of her personal life. But yeah, it doesn't sound like an especially healthy place. And she elaborated on this a little bit in a 2006 interview with Essence, she said, I had to step away when I realized that for the sake of the machine, I was being way too compromised. I had to fight for an identity that doesn't fit in one of those boxes. I'm a whole woman. And when I can't be whole, I have a problem. And by the end, I was like, I've got to get out of here. 
People need to understand that the Lauren Hill they were exposed to in the beginning was all that was allowed in that arena at that time. There was much more strength, spirit, passion, desire, curiosity, ambition, and opinion that was not allowed in a small space designated for consumer mass appeal and dictated by very limited standards. It's a very articulate way to, I mean, I assume this would be in our email interview phase, but it's a very articulate way to put uh, feeling at odds with the machine. Yeah, I mean, again, everything she says is like... It's not wrong. Yeah, it's not wrong. It's just, you know, not how, unfortunately, not the way that the system works. Torres' 2003 feature in Rolling Stone had some sources claiming that Columbia had spent over two and a half million on a follow-up to miseducation by that point, and that they had subsequently cut her off. Uh, her live shows around this time gained a reputation for starting hours late, if at all. Um, performances were frequently canceled. In December of 2003, during a performance in Vatican City, she spoke of the corruption, exploitation, and abuses by the Catholic Church, which, again, not wrong. Sure. Yeah. Read the room. Um, Very Sinead-like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, in Vatican City, <laughs> which is arguably, like, the most punk thing that you could possibly do. But, oh, yes, uh, totally. But, like, yeah, I don't, I don't know how she thought that would go for her. Fuji's reunited in 2004 for Dave Chappelle's Block Party uh, and Hill released. She has released new music. Uh, she's become, you know, just more and more of a recluse. <laughs> I found this delightful note in Wikipedia. One of the few public appearances Hill made in 2008 was at a Martha Stewart book signing in New Jersey. A fellow uh, inmate. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Speaking of tax evasion, then of course there was the tax evasion. In June of 2012, Hill was charged with three counts of tax fraud for failing to file taxes on $1.8 million of income earned between 2005 and 2007. In a long screed on her Tumblr account, Hill said that she had gone underground as a result of, quote, a climate of hostility, false entitlement, manipulation, racial prejudice, sexism, and ageism, going on to state, when I was working consistently without being affected by the interferences mentioned above, I filed and paid my taxes. This only stopped when it was necessary to withdraw from society in order to guarantee the safety and well-being of myself and my family. Which, again, makes sense. Sure, yeah. Not a thing you can do, though. She's a brilliant woman. I mean, everything we discussed earlier about, you know, writing songs for Aretha Franklin and yeah. Whitney Houston at age 20 and going to Columbia and being a uh, homecoming queen and... An athlete. I guess... Oh, and he's an athlete. I mean... I, and also an incredible actress, too. Yeah. Um, I would assume that people who are that brilliant maybe assume the rules don't apply to them or that the That's only fair. way to change things in society is not to comply. Well, the government was of a different mind, and she served <laughs> just under three months in the minimum security federal prison in Danbury, Connecticut. Uh, in 2021, Hill made the claim on a podcast that her label never asked how they could help her make another album, which is a commonly aggregated news piece, despite all of that stuff that I said about Torre's feature claiming Columbia spent $2.5 on her. I have to believe that that was not true. Like, I far be it for me to call Lauren Hill a liar, but I don't think there's any way that, that was, that's, a, that's a true thing. Um... Yeah, a source described the label uh, to him as bending over backwards for her. 
Um, but the fact of the matter is that other than if you're counting Unplugged, Hill has never given a proper full-length album follow-up to this. The big news this month is that she announced a 25th anniversary tour to commemorate Miseducation and all the obvious jokes about whether or not it'll start on time or if a new record will be timed to the album's 50th anniversary have been made. <laughs> so, thank you. That contest is now closed. Thank you to everyone who wrote in. Yes. Um, you know, I think the thing that makes me saddest about this is just the potential. I was reading a lot of interviews uh, from artists like also now canceled Lizzo and and but just a lot of young uh, um, hip hop adjacent or R and B adjacent uh, artists who talked about how truly crazy it was to have to see someone like her have such a level of visibility and just world domination when they were growing up you know and and one of the things we didn't mention at one point was that she had a tour that was like co-sponsored by Levi's like you know the jeans that was a big deal like it was a big fashion coup um and getting on the cover of like harper's bazaar and time magazine like that was really genuinely crazy shit, you know for a, a black woman at the time um especially in that era of hip-hop um so that's what just makes me sad about this is like you know there was seemingly such a long on road ahead of her uh and it just never materialized she took the off-ramp instead um you know, and, and being is that she hasn't talked about it a ton, you know, you can't really, we, we can only take her at her word that it was the right move for her and her family, but it's still, um, yeah, it's, it's just like seeing that, that idea of that potential never really materializes is, is really heartbreaking. Uh, what a bummer. Yes, but. It almost gets back to the old, is it better to have loved and lost than never loved sure. at all? Yeah. You know, we still have the album, man. It still sold 10 million copies. <laughs> you know, you can't take that away from her. She broke all those records. She was, and even if, you know, even if she never lived up to the potential of being that uh, figurehead and that person for the hip hop community, she was still out there for a lot of kids growing up who needed to see that. And that's what's ultimately still really important and what we can take away from it and hey you know if you get tickets i i really hope the show starts on time i'm alex heigl this has been too much information thank you for listening and i'm jordan runtog we'll catch you next time too much information was a production of iHeartRadio. the show's executive producers are noel brown and jordan runtog the show's supervising producer is michael alder june the show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. a moment to yourself every single day and a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause <sighs> bring along the melt in your mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies to add a sprinkle of joy to your workday this magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler elves so as life continues to fly by make the most of your me moment take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies 
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.